0: Thank you, once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. Continuing on in our voluminous study of the theology of the New Testament, that is sound doctrine, we now come to the subject of the victorious Christian life. For our past uh, dozen broadcasts or so, we've been talking about such practical things as prayer, uh, winning souls to Christ, Bible study, consecration, confession of Christ, assurance of salvation, sanctification, and other subjects to deal with in the practical matter of what happens to the Christian when he believes on Jesus Christ as his Savior and his future life and fellowship with the Lord. Up until this time, this series of studies have dealt with theological subjects. We should be rooted and grounded in doctrine, of course, before we're rooted and grounded in anything. And as Bud Robinson used to say, the modern Christian is not rooted and grounded in doctrine. He's just stuck in the ground. And there's a lot of truth in that. The reason why doctrinal Subjects have been avoided in radio preaching in the last 20 and 30 years is because as the churches run out of money, they have to get more people together to pay their bills. In order to get more people together in a school or a church, you have to say less and less about doctrine and say more about love and peace. Love and peace are the two great socialistic gimmicks for building the international communist Catholic Antichrist Church, which will take over in the tribulation. Those of you who know your Bible, of course, know the Antichrist Church will consume and... Uh, put together, all the Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, and Protestant denominations in one great big smorgasbord with two headings at the top, peace and love. These are the two great gimmick catchwords for the sucker these days, put up by the con man who pitched the to act, or as Barnum used to say, there's a sucker born every minute. And so the big suckers fall these days are what we call peace and love. We're not surprised uh, to find that... Uh, The greatest type of Antichrist in the Old Testament, Absalom, means the father of peace, and when the Antichrist comes, he destroys men peaceably by pretending to love them. Notice especially 2 Samuel chapter 18 and 2 Samuel chapter 16 and 17 in regards to this. So we've been spending weeks and months to get the Christian rooted and grounded in the sound doctrinal facts of Christology, homodiology, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, Christology, theology, pneumatology, and other theological subjects will deal with the Bible as a direct revelation of God to unsaved man and save man, telling men what they are to believe and what they are not to believe. Now, this is something that the carnal Christian will not stand to be told. He will believe what he wants to believe. He will be an optimist in spite of the fact that most of the people in the same asylums are optimists. He will reject the parts of the Bible preach against their sins on the ground they don't mean what they say. The carnal Christian's old nature is exactly like the nature of an unsaved man, and this is why in the last days they will not endure, quote, sound doctrine. We've taken great lengths now in these broadcasts, for over 80 broadcasts, to deal with these doctrinal matters, so that the child of God might be rooted and grounded in the faith of what God said as he said it, where he said it. And not be carried away and swept away with the tide of false doctrine, which overwhelmed the church previous to the coming of the Antichrist. No sure proof could be found that the modern Christian cannot sound stand uh, stand sound doctrine, is by the fact that he is continually in Acts chapter two. That's the way to spot the modern apostate, perverse heretic. Any man who would stay in Acts two is a blind guide of the blind. Number one, in Acts chapter 2, there are no Christians. The term doesn't occur to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 2, there are no Gentiles. They're all Jews or Jewish proselytes. In Acts chapter 2, you're on a Jewish feast day observed by Jews. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel, the grace of God has not yet been revealed. In Acts chapter 2, none of the New Testament has been written yet and on an Old Testament set up. And above all in Acts chapter 2, nobody in that chapter received the promise of the Holy Spirit the way they received the promise any time after that. Therefore, the outstanding characteristic of the group that cannot stand sound doctrine is the group that continually goes to hell in Acts 2 instead of going to heaven in Acts 10 and Acts 15. The rejection of sound doctrine, Acts 15, is the mark of the apostate fundamentalist or apostate conservative. Now the last few lessons have dealt with quieter subjects and less militant subjects because there's a variety of feelings about these things due to a variety of individuals. When we're discussing doctrinal matters, we're discussing absolute truth by the final authority laid down dogmatically by the author of truth without regard to what you think or who trained you. This naturally caused a great deal of trouble among carnal smyarchs who think their opinion is equal to the word of God, or they think their teachers in their school are intelligent. So when we deal with dogmatic subjects of theology where God said something as he said it, where he said it, to keep something of a soul, without regards to your personality, we encounter a great deal of difficulty from the backslidden carnal Christians of our day and age who talk so much about the gifts of the Spirit and the Holy Ghost. These demon possessed Christians cannot stand sound doctrine. Now they'll be able to take much of what we have to say from here on, because much of what we say to have from here on deals with practical matters of Christian life, which of course are variable. Now after conversion the heart cry of any heart is for holiness, to be like Christ. Any born again child of God wants to overcome sin and live above the world. Sometimes people hear testimonies of missionaries and preachers who after years of failure attend a good Bible conference where the word of God is preached and suddenly come into a blessing of a higher walk with Christ. Many Christians try and try, and when they don't succeed they sink down to a lower level of Christian experience, living on a standard lower than the desire but helpless to advance, and fearful lest they should make fools out of themselves by trying. Other Christians, having never heard of a victorious life, and continue sinning and confessing, sinning and confessing, and they wonder, is this all that Christ has to offer? Is yeah, there such a thing as apprentice Christians and journeyman Christians and master Christians? And if, if there is, should there be? Now, undoubtedly, there is a possibility of a victorious life. There is no possibility of a sinless life, but there is a possibility of living above sin and over sin and overcoming sin and not letting sin dominate your life. The Bible teaches victory over sin for every believer. First John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. John isn't speaking about victory in heaven, which of course is certain absolutely for any believer, but victory on earth daily victory, which is only possible to the Christian who obeys what the Bible says about daily victory. The Christian who spends his time in the psychological mishmash of the modern devotional broadcast or telecast will always have an up-and-down experience because he's never rooted anything stable. These unstable people who have no final authority have no sure authority for what they say or what they do. And again, this is why we spend a great deal of time in about 80 broadcasts to drive home to you the fact that the Holy Bible, a copy of which I have in my hand, is the absolute authority in correcting your school teachers and your Greek and Hebrew professors. After all, if your authority is your Hebrew and Greek professor, then it comes to overcoming sin, you'll have to run to them for the final authority, and they may not know anything about it. The Bible is the Word of God, and if the Christian who is unwilling to submit to the Bible as the final authority and insist on having twenty translations that contradict each other, I will tell you frankly, sir, you will never have victory over sin, so don't look for it. With the root sin of pride and unbelief in your life, and thinking your education equips you to correct the Word of God, there is any possibility at all that you'll overcome 90% of your sins, let, let alone uh, overcome 10% of them. Now, Satan will do his utmost to keep this knowledge from the Christian that he can have a victorious life. The devil doesn't mind an intellectual person or religious person as long as he's a powerless Christian, but he surely fears the power of a triumphant life. The devil isn't worried about high standards of double secondary separation that make you like a monk or a nun, just as long as the power of God is not manifest in your life. The devil doesn't care how many gifts you have to make you look like a conceited, smart-aleck idiot, just as long as your life is fruitless and barren of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 6. After all, the gifts can be counterfeited. The fruit cannot. Now, the promise of the victorious life. In John 7:37, Jesus stood and cried, That out of a man's belly shall flow rivers of living water. This is Jesus' own promise to a believer. He said that he came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want Christians to have just a little bit of life and victory, but abundant life and victory. Paul says in Romans 6:14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's strong language. That's what God said to Cain, and Cain messed up. He said, Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. The Lord told Cain he had no business letting sin run him, that he could run sin. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul said, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Always. Not just sometime, but always. ours the victory through Christ. First Corinthians ten thirteen is a great promise to the believer, showing him that under any set of circumstances, any temptation, he can claim a promise that God will answer. For the Holy Spirit has written, "There is no temptation taken you but as such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way to escape that you may be able to bear it." Or as Paul says, "Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him." Romans eight thirty seven. That is not just victory but abundant, abundant, super-abounding victory over our enemies. Our enemies, of course, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the principle of victorious life, of course, is by faith. This principle is that the victorious life is a gift received from God by faith, and it rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation was a gift. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. So our victory is also a gift. We cannot attain it by our own strength. That is impossible. Romans 1.17 says the just shall live by faith. The believer then is saved and begins a new life in the Spirit. But most Christians are like the foolish Galatians that try to continue in the flesh by works. These foolish Galatians were always worried about outward appearance and never inward condition. Victory is the work of the Savior in us, not our accomplishment in the least. That is, Christ's finished victory in Calvary Cross is his victory over sin, which we appropriate by faith, exactly as we appropriate salvation by faith. And it is Christ's victory in us, or as Paul used to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or as Paul used to say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, not I, not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live. In the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we confess our inability to gain victory and yield to the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gains the victory in us. Or as the Lord told Paul, his strength was made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians 12.9 The drunkard is converted and immediately gets victory over liquor, but that is not the victorious life. The dopehead gets converted and immediately has victory over dope. That is not the victorious life. The reprobate gets saved and immediately begins to blabber in tongues. That isn't the victorious life. The victorious life is where respectable people get victory over pride, jealousy, envy, stubbornness, exaggeration, laziness, ambition, and egotism. Faith does nothing. Faith lets God do it all. Dr. C.G. Trumbull said one qualification that you must have of the victorious life is the broken pinion, the broken nature, weakness. God couldn't bless Jacob and give him a new name until he busted his hip, tore his muscle, his thigh muscle, and, and Jacob limped all the rest of his life. Paul couldn't know the power of Christ's resurrection till he knew the fellowship of the sufferings and was smitten in the flesh with a thorn in the flesh by Satan, which caused him to carry a medical doctor with him all his life, and with all this gas about faith to be healed and having faith and all that nonsense, Paul remained sick till the day he died." and had a registered position with him in jail when he died, 2 Timothy chapter 4, whom he called the beloved position in Colossians chapter 4. The secret of victory is the indwelling Jesus Christ. Victory is in trusting, not trying. Now the secret of victorious life is our identification with Jesus Christ, and the great chapter on this is Romans chapter 6, verse 1, 1 to 22. The great Chapter for victory over Christ is Romans six. In the cross of Christ, in this chapter we learn two important truths. First of all, substitution: Jesus Christ in our place, and the next, identification: us with Jesus Christ. To the sinner, we teach substitution: look and live. To the saint, we teach look and die. We have to have the identification with Christ's death, the identification with Christ's burial the identification with Christ's resurrection, the identification with Christ's present triumphant life to have victory over sin. Now, all this is found in Romans chapter 6. First of all, there is the great truth that I died with Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is the great truth that I rose with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there is the great truth that I share Christ's present life. Number one, I died with Christ. Romans 6.5 says we're planted together in the likeness of His death. Romans 6.6, our old man is crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Absolute identification. Since death frees a man once and forever from the power and dominion of sin, Romans 6.7, we're dead to sin and free from sin by the fact we're identified with Jesus Christ's death. And that's why all Camelite elders uh, avoid the verse and make you go to hell with water, because the baptism in Romans 6 had nothing to do with water. If the baptism in Romans chapter 6 is water, then you're not dead with Christ, and not buried with Christ, and not living with Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that puts you into Jesus Christ, and once in Him you share His life. If you share His life, then you share His eternal life. If you share His eternal life, as you live and breathe and listen to this broadcast, your life goes back to the open tomb, to the grave, up on the cross, and is nailed there with the Savior, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, I was buried with him. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with him. Dead things ought to be buried, so we're buried with Christ. And of course our water baptism is only a picture of that. So when the unsaved Camelite makes Romans 6 water baptism, he takes you to hell with him by giving you a burial that's not a real burial, and a baptism that's not a real baptism, but only a figure. That isn't all. I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, I rose with Christ. Romans 6, 5 says, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Therefore we read continually, and I'm reading down through Romans 6, verse 4, 8, and 10, Even so we also should walk in newness of life, but henceforth we should not serve sin. We shall live with Him. He that liveth, liveth unto God, Christ in you the hope of glory. You see? You're dead with Him, you're buried with Him, you're risen with Him, you're walking with Him, if you have the victorious life. The secret is that the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ lives in the heart and body of every believer for the purpose of becoming Lord and Master of that life. Not Christ in your life, Christ in your body, Christ in you, never your life. That's the way to run Christ out of your body, so He only shares in certain things you do, and that road to hell is as good as any other. It is never Christ in your life anywhere in the Bible. In the Bible, Christ is your life. And Christ is not in your life, He's in your body. The carnal charismatics of 1 Corinthians 12 who were a bag of bragging about their gifts didn't even know their body was the temple of the Holy Ghost. Why the poor fools thought they were letting Christ into their life. Every saved person I'm listening to has the Lord Jesus Christ in His body. Or as Paul says, you have that treasure in an earthen vessel. Christ in you the hope of glory. I am dead and the living Christ lives and rules in my yielded body and gains constant triumph and victory for me as I yield to him. In my body at any one time there is one on the throne. In the throne of my heart the Lord Jesus Christ either reigning or I'm reigning. If I'm on the throne he's kneeling at the throne. If he's on the throne I'm kneeling at the throne. I'll give you one guess who should be on the throne. If you're on the throne, sin is reigning because you still have sin in your mortal body and you're born dead in trespass and sin and your body is subject to the laws of sin because it rots and the worms get it. There's a worm-eating dictator in the throne of your heart if you're running your life. If Jesus Christ running your life, he's on the throne and you're at the foot of the throne. Now, what are the requisites in a victorious life? Two things, absolutely. They're both found in the book of Romans, and that's why the unsaved heretics and the carnal rebels are always in the book of Acts. The reason why these carnal Christians, these spiritual babies, are always in the book of Acts is because they know nothing about the powerful Christian life. The requisites are found nowhere in the book of Acts. They're found in Romans 12 and Romans 6. Here are the requisites. Yield. Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that be alive from the dead. 1. Yield. 2. Reckon. Reckon. Romans 6.11, Reckon indeed therefore yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. The prerequisites for a victorious life are yielding and reckoning. First, you have to take your body and yield your members to God, and yield yourself to God as a man who is alive from the dead. Secondly, you have to reckon that you are dead because God said so, even though every member and every limb in your body will cry out that it is not dead but very much alive and has certain needs that need to be satisfied. God says our members are dead. God said they are nailed to the cross. The fact that they move, the fact that they breathe, the fact that they want this and want that is immaterial in God's sight, theologically and doctrinally. You are dead, and with Paul you can say, I am crucified, and if your Bible says, I have been crucified, you're reading the work of a liar who's trying to get you to avoid the overcoming life. It is not enough to say, I have been crucified, because that doesn't solve the problem. You are crucified at this present moment if you're saved, and your old man is nailed, though still active, like a body hanging on the cross dying, it is dead and buried, put out of God's sight as far as God's sight officially is concerned, and the new man is risen to walk in the newness of life. Therefore, every Christian in his present state has three things about him that are true. As far as his physical activity goes, are you listening? You're not going to get this in any fundamental school in the country because when they began to correct the King James Bible, God drew the line on them. Are you listening? As far as the physical functions of the body are concerned, the movements of the physical body and the child of God, they are the work of a man who is slowly dying, nailed to a cross. As far as that old nature is concerned in God's sight and its ability to bring forth good works or its ability to sin is concerned, the Lord has reckoned, reckoned it neuter, non-effective, a nullity, dead. He's abrogated it and doesn't count it one way or another. As far as the new man is concerned inside the Christian, he that has joined the Lord is one spirit, the new man is risen and walking with Christ, and this new man can have victory daily over sin. If it is true that you are dead to sin with Christ, then there is only one thing for you to do, and that is to yield yourself to God. Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body, your body, not your life. Now, mind all that psychological, humanistic, international, socialistic stuff that fundamentalists are using. Never mind that. Never mind the party line. Your body. Yield your body a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That is, assume your new position by faith. Reckon yourself to be dead. Reckon yourself to be alive from the dead. You are now living on resurrection ground on the victory side of the cross. Sin the world have no hold on you according to God. Don't fight sin, you can't, you'll lose the battle. Instead, yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yield to the power of the resurrected Christ. In your fight against sin, your greatest weapon is yielding to Christ and reckoning yourself dead. Those weapons of our warfare are said to be not carnal, but mighty through God. So for you Christian people listening to my voice, it's going to be a choice, either victory or defeat. As a Christian, you still have your own free will. If you choose victory, you can certainly have it as a gift from the Lord, providing you yield yourself to Him and reckon yourself dead. If you reject this gift of victory, you will continue to live a defeated Christian life. Paul says in Romans 6.16, 6, 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, here servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin under the right to death, or of obedience unto righteousness? So the choice is yours you either yield to righteousness or you yield to sin. The will determines. Romans 6.18 says, "Be men made free from sin, so freedom is yours for the taking. And you have a warning in Romans 6.19. If you choose uncleanness, it will lead down from iniquity to iniquity. In verse 22 in the same chapter, you are told since you are free from sin, you became a bond slave to Jesus Christ. The choice then is to whom will I surrender myself and my members. And of course a logical man who thinks rationally will realize there's only one rational, logical choice to make. If you are a bond servant of Jesus Christ, bought with a price, first Corinthians, you are a bond slave knocked down the block, or as Paul says, You are not your own, you are bought with a price. Is there really any argument or debate in your mind about to whom you should yield? Did the world pay for your sins and buy back your soul? Did the flesh pay for your sins and buy back your soul? Did the devil pay for your sins and save you from hell? Did sin die for you that you might get to heaven? Did Jesus Christ? Then what is the choice to make? Obviously, the choice is found in Romans chapter 1, verse one, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Obvious the choice is that I've been asked to do a reasonable thing which is not in the least unreasonable. I am to take my body and present my body to God as a living, there's the new man, sacrifice, there's Calvary, as those that be alive from the dead, there's the burial. And this is my reasonable service so I might Prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Now, the great catch in this, the thing it prevents 90% of the Christians from doing this, the thing it makes 90% of the Christians waste their time talking about the charisma and the Holy Ghost and peace and love and all this turtle love crap trap, is the fact that these Christians still want to be conformed to the world. And you're told in Romans chapter 1, there is no way under God's heaven you can present your body to God as a living sacrifice unless you are transformed in the renewing of your mind and cease to be conformed to the world. And this explains why 95% of the Christians of any age never find the will of their God for their life and bluff through with all these translations giving relative opinions because they don't know what they're talking about, having never found the will of God to start with. They are simply in money-making rackets like any unsaved man and the constituents are in feeling and emotional experiences like any unsaved person the Johnny Carson show. In short, they are pious talking hypocrites. Because they are not transformed by the newing of their mind, they are conformed to this world. Christians who are conformed to this world cannot find out what the will of God is, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, and of course the victorious life is absolutely out of the question. And that's why most of these Christians think you can lose your salvation. That's why most of them are plagued from morning to night about thoughts of losing their salvation or committing the unpardonable sin, because they are shallow, Bible-rejecting, relativistic, peace-loving, love-loving, humanistic, socialistic sheep. They have never grown up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, the full and perfect man, and they are still conformed to this world in their opinions, their thinking, their friends, their dress, their clothing, their habits, and their amusements. May God help you to cut loose from this bunch, drop off fellowship from them, become separated, and we'll talk about that more in our next lesson, and know what it's like to walk day by day on the mountain plateau with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the old song says, living on a mountain in Beulah Land. Since confirmation of the work to the world system is one of the greatest hindrances to the victorious life. We shall devote our next broadcast, the entire 28 minutes of our next broadcast, to studying the great subject of separation for the child of God.